All right, Acts chapter 7 this morning. Again, it's a long chapter, 60 verses, so we did it in two messages. Last week was the first one. Title of the message this morning is Words to Get Stoned By. And I don't mean that kind of stone. <laughs> Stephen gets stoned in this, in this chapter, and it's because of the words that he shared that the things happened to them, happened to him as they did. And, of course, he was killed according to the Jewish method of execution at the time, which was stoning. From the vantage point of history, from the vantage point of eternity, Stephen's death, his martyrdom, was infinitely worth it. And I think that we'll see some of the reasons why. One of the early church leaders, Tertullian, in the second century said, it's the blood of the martyrs that is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs provides seed that goes into the ground, and the church grows up from the seed. And that's been true every place that persecution and bloodshed for the cause of Christ has occurred. The church has always grown. One of the classic stories on a macro scale was what happened in communist China during the reign of Mao Zedong, where they made great efforts to completely eradicate Christianity. Many, many believers lost their lives and the church was forced to go underground. After those bans, some of them were lifted and there was ability to go back into the country. Uh, missiologists and church, uh, leaders were shocked to find that not only was the Chinese church still alive, it was alive and well. In fact, it had grown uh, exponentially because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So that's what we'll see in our passage this morning. But let's pray, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. It's your word. It's not our word. It's your word to us. Thank you for that. We ask that you give us minds to understand, hearts to receive, and wills to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last week's message included historical information from the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50. Stephen does it in a very short number of verses here in Acts chapter 7, the call of Abraham through the rise of Moses and the deliverance of uh, Israel um, uh, coming into the land of promise, all the, found all the way through uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the whole passage. Uh, I want to draw your attention to verse 35 of chapter 7 as we head into our, our, our text this morning, Stephen, speaking about Moses, said, This Moses, whom they rejected, that is, the fathers, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And as we pointed out last week, Moses, arguably the greatest human leader of all time, other than Jesus, was rejected. In spite of all of the things that happened through his life and ministry, he was rejected. So the pattern and the theme of Stephen's message is, is emerging here. Uh, what he's doing is he's showing how historically Israel had, had rejected the primary messengers that God had sent to them, and he's going to come to the conclusion that they've done it again. Of course, this was a historical fact. They've done it again by rejecting Jesus. This was a bad habit they had. They rejected their greatest leaders, their greatest prophets were rejected by Israel. But in today's passage, Stephen digs even deeper than that. And he deals with Israel's historical rejection of others the Lord has sent to them, and especially their rejection of Christ. So we're reading in 
verses 37 through 41 to start off. The title of this section is Moses was not the one. Verse 37. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now if you're reading a newer translation, the words, him you shall hear, will not appear in that translation. It's been taken out. But it does belong in the verse because this is a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 18.15 where Moses, in writing to and speaking to the children of Israel, says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. It's exactly what the Lord inspired him to say in the book of Deuteronomy. So Moses is talking about someone that is a future leader called the prophet. Later on, when John the Baptist came on the scene, they were curious as to who he was. What do you say about yourself? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? They all knew that this the prophet was someone special that was coming. But who was it? Moses wrote that you will listen to him when he comes and he will rise up from among you uh, and in your midst. He'll be like me. That is, he'll be a human being. So let's find out who he is. It's not hard to find out. Back in chapter 3 of the book of Acts, when Peter was preaching to the crowds that had assembled because of the healing of the lame man at the beautiful gate, Peter said to that crowd, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. It shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So you put the whole sermon together and it's very clear. Peter is talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about their need for him. And he's using the Deuteronomy 18 passage to show that the prophet is Jesus. So he's the messenger that God has sent to you. You better pay attention to him and to what he's done for you uh, for your sins. So that was the message of Peter. So the prophet is Jesus. The prophet of Deuteronomy 18.15 is Jesus. Moses was not that, the one but Jesus is the one. Verse 38 of our text, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel. Speaking of Moses now. Moses is the one in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers. The one who received the living oracles to to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. So Moses is now spoken of more particularly by Stephen. He's the one that the angel had appeared to in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Moses wanted to know what name should I give to the children of Israel concerning who it is that's sending me to them. I am that I am, he said. This is what you shall say to the children of Israel. I am has sent me unto you. That Moses, that very Moses, was the one who eventually went up on Mount Sinai. And spent 40 days and 40 nights there with no food, no water at all. Super, supernatural type of a fast. And he received there what Stephen calls the living oracles. He's talking about the, the law. He's talking about 
that contained in, in the book of Exodus, chapters 20 through 24. He's talking about the law. Living oracles. And our fathers, Stephen says, wouldn't obey Moses, ultimately, even though he'd experienced those things. And they turned back to Egypt in their hearts. Why? Because it was easy for God to get the people out of Egypt, but it was more difficult to get Egypt out of the people. And that really was the issue uh, for them. And so they wanted to go back. And so while Moses was up in the mountain for those 40 days and 40 nights, they didn't know where he went. Uh, well, they may have known where, they, where he went, but they didn't know how long he was going to be gone and if he was ever coming back. So they became restless and they reverted to their natural selves. And that reversion meant that they went back to idolatry. And so they came to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. And so the story is going to go on and we're going to quote from Exodus 32 where all this happens. It's a horrible incident, the incident of the golden calf. Absolutely horrible horrible that they should fall into this kind of idolatry, especially since the first commandment says, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Primary commandment, essential commandment, idolatry, no bueno. This is not what you do. This is not how you live your life. So in Exodus, we'll read the the passage directly from the text. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that will go before us. But as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earwings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Imagine that. Exchanging the image of the incorruptible God into an image of gold and saying, This is your God that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The heart of man is incurably religious and needs something bigger than ourselves to worship. There's no doubt about that. And God, knowing that about us, said, make sure that when your heart is inclined to worship, you're you're worshiping the proper object and the, uh, the proper person. Uh, A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, defines idolatry this way. He says, the essence of idolatry, what it's really all about, the essence of idolatry is the entertaining of thoughts about God that are not worthy of Him. The essence of idolatry, if you break it down to its core component, is the entertaining of thoughts about God that are not worthy of Him. And so here, here we have the children of Israel. They're thinking of God in the, in the, in the perspective of a, of a golden calf that they made with their own hands. And it's just a horrible, horrible sin. So the people began to worship this God. And it goes on in the text in Exodus. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow's a feast to the Lord. They rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And they had no clue whatsoever that they were in the most danger they've ever been in in their entire collective lives. Because the Lord was having a conversation or thinking about a plan because of their idolatry, I'm just going to eradicate the nation completely. I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses, I'm going to start over with you. You're going to be the new head and originator of the nation. Well, Moses interceded in prayer, nobly, and because he knew God's heart, and he knew that this would uh, is not at all what God wanted to do, he knew that the Lord wanted to be merciful and wanted to be forgiving. So Moses interceded, and the Lord... Uh, did not follow through with that plan to wipe out the nation and start again with 
with uh, Moses. Now, there's a lot of a lot of things that could be said about that, but let's just say this: God knew what He wanted to do before Moses even prayed, but He allowed Moses to be the intercessor to bring that kind of prayer before the Lord that would ultimately give glory to Himself and put Moses in a position of honor as next to Jesus, the greatest intercessor of all of human history. But it was a terrible and an evil thing that they had done, and they had no idea how much danger they were in. They had no idea that their lives were hanging in the balance here. Instead, what were they doing? They're offering all of these offerings to a golden calf, and sitting down to eat and drink and rising up to play. Life is wonderful, they thought. But it almost ended for them. So that's that section of their history, and it's a, it's a blight on their record. And, you know, when Moses confronted the whole issue, and there was a chastisement that the Lord put upon the people, well-deserved, and some people did eventually die, but not all the nation. Uh, Moses had to ultimately confront his brother Aaron. And Aaron made a pitiful explanation for everything. Yeah, they gave me the gold, they brought it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. (laughs) Man, that's another tendency of human beings, is that we have this horrible tendency to blame shift and make excuses. And where did we get that? Well, from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat? Well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I did eat. Blaming God for giving him the woman and blaming the woman for giving him the fruit. It wasn't my fault, your fault and her fault. And then confronting the woman, she said, well... The serpent. He made me do it. Nobody could take responsibility for their own actions. And that's basic human nature. We have a, an aversion to taking responsibility for our own actions. But isn't it wonderful as believers? It's just the opposite. And I loved what, what Mark shared as he shared with us during the worship about his week and his reaction to it. Not a pretty reaction to it, but covered by the ace of spades, the trump card, the blood of Christ. <laughs> But the confession, you see, that's the opposite of blame shifting. It's confession and owning up to what we've done. And that's what the Bible says. If we confess our sins, it's basically own up before the Lord. I did it. No excuses. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to rename it. It was adultery. It was not an affair. You know, it was this or not that, whatever we have to do, we confess it, we make it real clear that we're owning up to it. And if we confess our sins, what does he do? He's faithful because he said he would, and he's just because Jesus paid for the sins already to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is such a beautiful thing. It's one of the reasons why we as believers love the conviction of sin. Because the conviction of sin leads us to a self-awareness that we don't have apart from it. And that self-awareness produces a desire to come back into a renewed fellowship with God, which leads us to confession, which leads us to the cleansing from all unrighteousness, and we're good to go again. For all the years and all the days that I've been a Christian, I'm so grateful that every morning I'm good to go again today. New mercies that are available in my life, in our lives. So that's that section of their history that Stephen is talking about. It wasn't a pretty picture. So eventually the nation was given up to idolatry. So the section uh, here continues. Verse 42. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Now this spans another 
season of Israel's history during which they continued to fall into other forms of idolatry. And God warned them about it. So the result was the northern ten tribes called Israel were carried away and uh, led captive into Assyria. And then a hundred plus years later, the southern two tribes, they were judged for their idolatry and they were carried away captive to Babylon. And God did what he said he was going to do and he chastened them uh, as a result. It is interesting, I will carry you away to Babylon. Again, the repeated warnings God gave to Israel through the prophets. And the Israel knew better than to do what they were doing with idolatry. But you remember there were seasons in Israel's history where they didn't even have a, a working copy of the, of the scriptures. They didn't even have a copy of the law. And in the days of Josiah, Hilkiah the priest found a copy of the law in the rubble of the temple, brought it out, and Josiah read it. He tore his clothes. I mean, it was, they'd been without it for so long. So during those seasons when they either forgot the law, they didn't have it available to them because there were no available copies, kings, evil kings had destroyed all of the existing copies. They didn't have it. So God would raise up the prophets. And the prophets didn't say anything new that was different from what the law said. They only said, this is what the law says. This is what you're doing right now. And so fess up and repent and turn from this. If you don't, then this is what's coming. And so they warned them and warned them and warned them. And eventually they were past uh, being able to even hear the warnings. And God judged them and sent them away captive uh, beyond Babylon. Remember how long that captivity was? 70 years. Do you remember why it was 70 years? It was because God had commanded them, as long as they lived in the land of Israel, that every seventh year the land was to lie fallow, and they weren't to plant it, sow it, or harvest it. Every seventh year, they never did it. For 490 years of occupation, they never kept the seventh Sabbath year. So there were 70 Sabbath years that were not kept during their history in the land. So God says, I'm sending you away beyond Babylon. How long? 70 Sabbath years worth, because I'm going to get my 70 years. Whether you're going to willingly let the the land lie fallow or not, It's going to lie fallow now because there's not going to be any of you in it. That's why it was a 70-year captivity. And he brought them back, just like he said he would. So the history, after the exodus, what happened with Israel? They came into the promised land, obviously under Joshua. They drove drove out the Canaanites, at least partially. After Joshua died, then they fell into idolatry, severe idolatry, during the days of the judges. And the Lord would raise up a judge, and you know that whole cycle that happened in the book of Judges. And then eventually the judges morphed into the days of the kings. Samuel was the last judge, Saul was the first king, but David was the king that's after God's own heart. So the days of the kings. And... uh so the, the in the northern kingdom, after the kingdom divided, every single northern kingdom king was evil. Every single one of them fell into idolatry, so they were judged and taken away in the 8th century B.C. In the days of the southern kings, there were some righteous kings. David, uh, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, Jeho- Josiah, uh, some other righteous kings, but eventually they too became wholly idolatrous and they were carried away captive. Therefore, God fulfilled his promise and he did what he said he would do. He judged the nation, he destroyed the temple, and he sent them into captivity and then eventually brought them back in what we call the return. Next section in our text, God gave Israel the tabernacle and the temple in which they trusted. So again, Stephen is building his case, showing them their history, their propensity to reject the truth and reject the leaders that God had sent to them. God gave Israel the tabernacle and the temple in which they trusted, 
Verse 44, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So God gifted them with the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a structure that was an earthly representation of the realities of heaven. So by understanding what the tabernacle was, and all of the different pieces of furniture in the tabernacle, they were understanding some of the spiritual truths that are reserved for heaven itself. And that's why Moses had to build it exactly according to plan that was given to him while he was on the mountain. He couldn't deviate in any way, because if he deviated in any way, he would actually be changing the idea of heaven in the minds of the people. And God didn't want that. So he said, you've got to build it exactly. So he built the tabernacle, and it became very important. Of course, the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. That's the place where the very presence came on top of the uh, Ark itself, which is the mercy seat, that lid. It's a symbol. It's a picture of the place where atonement is made, where propitiation in the gospel is made, where Jesus Christ comes and makes propitiation for our sins, expiation for our sins, takes it away, judges sins, removes it from us. That's the mercy seat, and Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. So the most important piece of furniture in that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's all built. But David, he's thinking, I'm dwelling in this wonderful, beautiful house that I've built for myself, but the Lord's living in a tent. The Lord's living in a tent, so David had it in his mind to build a house. And the Lord says, you're not going to build me a house, David, because you're a man of bloodshed, and I don't want that to be the legacy of the building that's built to replace the tabernacle. So David made it his aim to prepare for the building of the temple, and so he gathered the materials and put plans together and did all of those kinds of things. And when his son Solomon succeeded him, Solomon was given wisdom to follow through with the building project, and he built the house. And that's what Stephen is talking about here. Don't you love the way Stephen knows the word? The way he's able to just take the whole of Old Testament history and summarize it so succinctly. But here's Stephen's point, verse 48. This is what he's leading up to. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. They built a house for God, but what difference does it make, ultimately? The Most High does not dwell in temples made with human hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? The Lord unimpressed. The Lord not needing this house, but he allowed it to happen. But the problem was that the house became an object of veneration for the people. They were proud of the house. They loved the house. They identified with the house. They had a religious affinity to the house that was made, but they neglected the God who they thought lived in the house. So what good does the house do if called the house of God, yet the people that gather to it aren't really worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth? So he didn't need it. He didn't ask for it. He consented to it, to allow it to be built. But they turned it around like they always did throughout their history to make it an object of veneration. I was aware of these kinds of tendencies uh, when we built our facility in the Monterey Peninsula. And it was really a, a, a nice building, 
But we built it so that if something happened and it could never be used as a church again, somebody would be able to buy it and build it for a, use it for a business or something like that. You know, we weren't trying to create, you know, a cathedral or anything of the kind. But, you know, I heard people start to say, yeah, well, the church is located out there on Highway 68. I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> the church is not located out on Highway 68. The facility that we meet in a couple of times a week is located out there on Highway 68. But the church is made up of human beings. And isn't it interesting at the end of Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul writes that we, the church, are, are being built up as a habitation of God in the Spirit. Where does God really live? Does he live in a house that was built in Jerusalem? No. He lives in human beings that are gathered together as part of the bride of Christ. We are his habitation. And the most important resource of any church body is not the facilities. It's not the budget. It's not the building. And it's not even the numbers of people that come there into that facility. The most important asset and resource of any church are the people. By far. That's why God gave to some apostles. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers to do what? To equip the believers for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, develop this asset. I'm, I'm the asset, but I live in people, so the people are the greatest asset. So the church leaders are to help develop the asset to enable them to become all that they can become corporately, collaboratively, as the church of Jesus. That's the picture. And I remember speaking at a church once, they were asking me to do an assessment for them and give them recommendations moving forward as to how uh, they could improve what they were doing in their church. And uh, I stood up on a Sunday, and I was very impressed with every aspect of their church ministry. They had a wonderful staff. Their staff was hardworking, and they were good at, at what they did. The Lord was using them. They had an off-the-charts worship ministry. It was really great. I loved being there to worship with them. Their pastor, who's a friend of mine, exemplary in his exposition of the scripture. They had so many things going on. They had a good crowd coming. There was lots of income coming into that church. Everything was there. And I said, you know, all of these things are so great and it's so encouraging to be around you folks and to be here. I really love it, as I do here. But I said, but all of that stuff that I just named, that's not the most important thing. You are. You are. And I told them the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure hidden in the field. And for joy over it, he went and sold everything that he had in order that he might buy the field. Why did he buy the field? Because he wanted the treasure. He knew the treasure was in the field, so he bought the field so he could have the treasure in the field. Well, guess what the field is? The field is the world, according to Jesus' interpretations within the parables. And who's the man that saw the treasure hidden in the field? It's Jesus. And what is the treasure hidden in the field? It's his bride. So he went and sold everything he had. Jesus did. He sold everything that he had. He went, he went to the mat. He went to the cross. Gave up his life rose from the dead, ascended back into heaven in order that he might buy the field. He did. He bought the field. He bought the world. He's the Redeemer. It's his. So that he can have the treasure that's in it, which is you and me and the body of Christ. So, you know, that's a wonderful thing. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, we are his workmanship, his work of art, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has foreordained that we should walk in. The Lord gets great pleasure, and he has tremendous delight 
in the work that he can do in a person and through a person. I think it's one of his favorite things. In fact, Jesus said, this is the way my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my followers. How do we bear fruit? Well, we're the branches. What are the branches connected to? The vine. Who's the vine? Jesus. We bear fruit when we are properly connected to the vine, which we are through faith in the gospel, and when the life of the vine is flowing through us. He said, abide in me, and I in you. I want you to live in me, but I also want you to understand I live in you. Live that way. Live according to my resource in you, not according to your own wisdom, your own resource, your own power, your own thinking, your own plans, your own will. Scrap all those. Let my will be your will, and my power be your power. And that's how we bear much fruit. And so, and so prove to be Christ's disciples and so glorify the Father. That's, that's the heart of God on all this. And he, he loves the things that he makes because it's the only pure thing that can be made. And when he makes a person through the new birth and fills them with his spirit, gives them gifts, gives them willingness, puts a calling upon their lives to do this or to the, that, and then his life flows through them, the Father loves it. Absolutely loves it. Because he's sharing all of this with us. And we're sharing all this with him. And there's communion going on between the Father and the Son and the believer. There's a sharing. Prayer is like that. Prayer is just joining in with the things that God already wants to do. It's not twisting the divine arm to try to get him to do things that he's reluctant to do. It's actually finding out what he wants to do and then asking him to do the things that we know from Scripture he wants to do. And the Father loves that too because he's sharing with us in this thing called prayer and in this thing called ministry. It's his life. We're the habitation of God in the Spirit. It's wonderful. But they, in Stephen's day, didn't see it that way. The religious leaders that he was speaking to, the Jewish Supreme Court, the the Sanhedrin, these were men that were full of religion, but not full of relationship. And so they had made the temple, which was still standing at the time of Stephen's sermon, they had made it an idol. So Stephen is done with his message. He's made his point. All the important messengers that God had sent to the nations, nation had been rejected, and then even the temple itself had been made an object of veneration. So now he gets into the real application of all of this. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You want to make a Jewish man angry? refer to him as being uncircumcised in any way. They were uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. All of the prophets that were talking about Jesus. Of whom you've now become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. That's a, that's a loaded indictment. They're stiff-necked, they're uncircumcised, they always resist the Holy Spirit, they persecute all of the prophets, they kill those that talk about the coming of Messiah. They themselves were his betrayers, they themselves were his murderers, they received the law that they trusted in by the direction of angels, but they've not kept it. You couldn't come up with a more thorough indictment of these 70 men standing before Stephen than this one, based on history. He wasn't judging them. He was just telling them the truth about their history. I think it's interesting to compare Stephen's sermon with Peter's sermon, which was delivered to the large crowd gathered on the day of Pentecost. In Peter's sermon, he preached Christ, crucified and risen, And the crowd there were terrified because they realized that Jesus was alive, the one they sent to the cross, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah is alive. He's, he's not in a cage called death. He's on the prowl. He could come and get us. What's going to happen? So what are we going to do? They asked Peter. Well, Peter gave them the good news. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit because the promise is for you and for everyone else who receives this message. Peter's purpose in the sermon was to give them the gospel and when they understood the spiritual trouble that they were in having rejected Christ so far, what do we do? Repent, change your mind which leads to a change of heart, which leads to a change of actions. Believe this gospel message. Be baptized as the sign that you've received this gospel message and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to do. Peter wanted them to be saved. His message was evangelistic. Stephen's message was pre-evangelistic. I'm sure he wanted these men to be saved, but this was an indictment. This wasn't a gospel presentation. This was an indictment to prove their guilt, which was necessary for them, that they understand their guilt. And you know how it goes. Before we can receive the good news, we've got to receive the bad news. I remember the day that I received the bad news. My girlfriend said to me that I'd been going with for a year, you're a jerk. (laughs) And then she told me for a half an hour what kind of jerk I had become. And she was right. And miracle of miracles, I listened to her for a half an hour with no interruption. It was the Holy Spirit talking to me big time about what a horrible individual I'd become. Well, that was the bad news. I needed to hear the bad news. The next day, the good news came. I got filled with the Spirit and received Christ as my Lord. So I'm glad for the tough conversation. It wasn't fun at the time, but so necessary. And maybe that happened with some of these members of the Sanhedrin that day. I don't know. So that's what got him stoned. Words to get stoned by. That's what got Stephen stoned was the preaching of this message very intentionally in this way. He made statements that were an indictment. It made them very angry, as we'll see. You know, we live in a cultural climate today where virtually any statement we make with regard to anything that's true is going to be offensive to someone because they've chosen to make it offensive to themselves. And it will sometimes, and many times most definitely will, come back on us. What do we do about it in a, in a culture like this, which is so caustic to the idea of truth? not to mention Jesus or anything that he teaches. Well, we continue to be bold, confident, outspoken, and speak the truth. But we have to do it in a certain way. We, we need to follow Jesus' instructions and say, and, and do it this way. We need to be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. That's what we need to do. In other words, don't stand up on the lunch table and start preaching, you know, during your breaks. Because that's going to get you fired. That would be stupid. You want to be a witness to that group of people that you're co-workers? Well, then don't get fired. You want to at least hang out so you can be a witness to them. Look for ways to reach your co-workers off-site. Maybe answer their questions. If they have questions, answer them very briefly and then make a commitment to talk to them afterwards at McDonald's <laughs> on your own time. Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. But don't make the mistake of just shutting up. That would be the worst thing to do. It's a myth to say that preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. That is a myth. You cannot preach the gospel without using words. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who who hear it and receive it. So you have to use words to preach the gospel. They're not going to look at at my lovely life and say, I just can't I just gotta get I gotta get converted. I just got to. He hasn't said a single thing about anything to me, but I just must commit my life to Jesus. It's not gonna happen. It's the gospel's the power of God unto salvation. It is. 
So we need to preach it and share it, but in a comely way, in a in a in a gentle way, in a in a truthful, sincere way. So what was the response to Stephen's conclusion? Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. That means they were really, really mad. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. Just imagine this. Guzik paints the picture in his commentary of, of, you know, giving testimony with a bunch of senators. And they get very angry and they're gnashing at the teeth. What would that scene be like on C-SPAN? <laughs> what kind of footage would that generate? They gnashed at him with their teeth, but he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's what Stephen Stephen saw. Uh, He wasn't focused on the angry group and the gnashing teeth. He was focused on Jesus. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's what Stephen saw. Because he was about ready to die. So he had the most beautiful vision and the most beautiful awareness of heaven and of Jesus himself that one could imagine. In fact, there's question as to whether or not this actually was a vision. Or was this happening in real time in 3D? I happen to think that it's very possible that Stephen actually saw heaven. That clouds did part, and Stephen standing there in Jerusalem was able to see it wasn't that far away. That dimension opened up, and it peeled back for him, and he actually saw the Son of God. I don't see there's a necessity for heaven to be in some galaxy far, far away. I think heaven is in our atmosphere. It's just belonging to another dimension. And there's evidence of this at places in the scripture. Isaiah saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. He saw that. There's nothing that says that it was just a vision. When Elisha was with uh, his servant Gehazi and the city of Dothan was surrounded by the Syrian army, Elisha calmed his servant down by saying, don't be afraid, there there are more that are for us than are against us. And Elisha's servant probably was wondering, what are you smoking? What are you talking about? It's you and me and the Syrian armies. And the Lord, and Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And the Lord opened the eyes of Elisha's servant. And what did he see? He saw heaven's angels surrounding the army of the Syrians. And just like he'd said, there are more that are for us than are against us. They were there the whole time. It's just that they were not able to be seen without the eyes being opened to, to, to see into that dimension. And it's possible that that's what happened with Stephen here. The Hebrews 12 says that since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, but, and let's run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We have such a great cloud of witnesses. In my own mind's eye, and this could be right, I'll find out one day, could be wrong. I see myself like being a professional baseball player in the glory days of Major League Baseball. And I'm not that good, but I'm, I'm up at bat, and there's Christy Mathewson out on the mound, and I'm up at bat, and there's Babe Ruth in right field. And there's Ty Cobb in left field. And then in the crowd are all the Hall of Fame baseball players that have played throughout the ages. And I'm there, and they know my name, and they're watching me. And they want me to get a hit. They're cheering for me to get a hit off of Christy Mathewson. 
I'm surrounded by a cloud of witnesses in that scene in my mind's eye. I see heaven that way. I see the Lord being for us and observant of us and aware of us and connected to us and wanting us to succeed by his strength. I just see that. I see that. Stephen saw that. He saw Jesus. So maybe it's true. Maybe heaven isn't geographically that far away. Well, when Stephen said this, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, they cried out, verse 57, with a loud voice, stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear anymore. Ran at him with one accord. This was a mob rush upon Stephen. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And... uh John was speaking with me about what this was actually like before the service. They would take him to a precipice, and the height of it had to be at least twice the height of a man, and they'd throw him over the precipice. And if the fall didn't kill him, he's lying there in pain, probably broken bones, they turned him over so his chest faced the sky, and they would throw a huge rock boulder-type rock upon his chest and crush his chest and kill him. If that didn't do it, then everybody pull out their rocks and finish the job. This is a horrible. And you know the thing about all this? They stoned him, and then the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. That would end up being Paul the Apostle one day. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now just put that in your mind, how Stephen died. Imagine what that would be like. You preached your sermon You made your indictment. You said the truth. They rush on you in a mob rush. They throw you down over the precipice. The the rock comes. The stones come. And Stephen, what's he doing? He's not screaming out with screams of agony. He's calling on God. And he's anticipating that union with Christ that's very close at hand. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's what he's focused on. Then he kneels down and he realizes there's some unfinished business here. He needs to ask the Lord to forgive them as he forgave them. Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Who dies like this? Stephen did. First martyr in the church. Who dies like this? Stephen did. With such grace, with such victory, with such grace toward others, forgiving those that had stoned him and he was right at the last seconds of his life to death. Not to be lost in the passage is the fact that Saul was there and they laid Their clothes, the ones that were doing the stoning, at his feet. And he watched. He watched. He saw it happen. Saul had no doubt been part of and witnessed stonings. But he'd never seen anybody die like this, guaranteed. Never. Later, this same Saul would become the Apostle Paul. Later, he would write about this experience. He said in Acts 22, When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, agreeing to this horrible execution, and guarding the clothes of those that were killing him. Later, he wrote about his days as a persecutor of the church to the Corinthians, and he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
when we read the account of Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and it shows up in chapter 9 of Acts, chapter 22 of Acts, and chapter 26 in Acts, three times his conversion story is told. The Lord Jesus appears to Saul. He falls down to the ground. Saul hears Jesus' voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul responds back, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting you. And then Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What were the goads? Well, it was a long, very sharp stick or something made out of metal that could actually be attached to the plow that the oxen were pulling. If it was a stick, it was being held by the, the one doing the plowing, and he would jab the hind legs of the ox with the goad to keep the ox moving. If it was part of the plow, it was pointed towards the rear of the ox so that the oxen, if it tried to shake itself loose, it would go right into the pointed edges of the iron ox goads. And as Guzik writes in his commentary, essentially... In this image, Saul is the ox. (laughs) Jesus is the farmer, and Saul is dumb and stubborn, yet valuable to the master Jesus. It was hard for Saul to kick against the goads, because every time he tried to shake the influence of Jesus in his life, it got more painful for him. Everything he did to try to escape the gaze of the Son of God, it got more painful for him. And he couldn't get out of his mind the image of Stephen's death. There were other things that contributed to his conversion. One of which is that he finally grasped the purpose of the law. He thought he was righteous according to the law. He would kept the commandments. He was a Pharisee. According to the righteousness which is in the law, he would write later, I was found blameless. But then he came to the one commandment that he couldn't explain away, which was, you shall not covet. That dealt with the desires. And he looked within himself, and the law was speaking to him, and the Lord was saying to him, you are a greedy, covetous man. Oh, I am a sinner. And he wrestled with the conviction of sin in his life that he was willing to admit for the first time, combined with the image of Stephen's death that was replaying itself in his mind over and over and over again. Well, he'd been kicking against the goats and it had been painful for him. Finally, when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, he was ready to lay it down and surrender. So I have to ask the question, (laughs) what do you think? Was Stephen's death worth it? Yeah, I do, because I think the, the chief most important thing that came out of Stephen's death was the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And he was unstoppable for the kingdom. Was Stephen's life worth it? You think, man, talk about a guy with promise and potential. I mean, he, he was apparently in a, in a, in a class by himself in, in many ways. A man of miracles. A man of wisdom. A man filled with the Spirit. A man who exhibited great spiritual power by the Spirit. A man who obviously knew the Scriptures backwards and forward. A man of great influence. All of those things. An up-and-comer. Relatively young. His life now on earth, no longer existing. What a waste of resources, we might think. What a shame that he died so young. Was his life worth it? Yeah, it was. Was Jim Elliott's life worth it? Who died at the hands of the Waka Indians down in Ecuador. He and his his, his co-missionaries. And he's the one that wrote... A man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. Yeah, his life was worth it. Young man. It's just worth it. From an eternal, 
spiritual perspective, this martyrdom of Stephen was huge. It was cataclysmic in its effect. And it helped reinforce what Jesus had taught the disciples when he was here with us. And that is, when you are persecuted like this, rejoice and be exceedingly glad because this is the way they persecuted the fathers and the prophets who were before you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the other members of the body of Christ in the early days of the church... We're saying, yeah, this really will cost us. Some of us are going to lose our lives. It's happening worldwide. It may come, that kind of physical persecution here. But that's all right. We're just part of a long legacy of those that have been persecuted for the name of Jesus. Will it be worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's pray. And we thank you, Lord, for uh, your word and for what you've done. I mean, this is a, as an, an historical record of things that happened 2,000 years ago. Amazing story, but it's true. Let it speak to us, Lord. May we be just like Saul of Tarsus in the sense that we gaze upon Stephen's message, we gaze upon Stephen's martyrdom and we say wow what a way to die what a way to die teach us from it Lord teach us from it Lord in Jesus name and all God's people said amen amen